Hey there, welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Jason Barnes, and today we're joined by rhinologist and skull-based surgeon, Dr. Nick Rowan, and we'll be discussing juvenile nasopharyngeal angiofibroma. Dr. Rowan, thanks so much for being here. Hey, Jason. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to talk with you today. So when we talk about uh, JNA, uh, what is the classic or who is the classic patient who presents to your clinic who has JNA? So juvenile nasal angiofibromas, to start off with, uh, the, the nomenclature, the way that they're described, uh, does change quite a bit. So sometimes you'll, call, you'll hear it called a juvenile nasal angiofibroma or a nasal pharyngeal angiofibroma or just a fibroma, and it's all kind of the same thing. And the real classic patient um, that presents to you is a uh, young male who's got unilateral, at least it started as unilateral, nasal airway obstruction or nasal blockage. And uh, really the classic sign that they have is they have epistaxis or nose bleeding. Usually it's recurrent and it's from one side. Um, Some of them might actually be pretty severe um, and they might require medical attention. That's really what prompts them to have them um, to present to you originally. Despite the bleeds and the nasal blockage, there are other symptoms that uh, present. So sometimes they'll have a little bit of pain, discomfort. It's not uncommon if there's a tumor in their nose for them to have um, drainage, sometimes pretty thick kind of inspissated secretions coming out the front of their nose. They might also say that they have some diminished sense of smell on that side. Um, In kind of more advanced presentations, um, they'll have some localized facial pressure on the side of the tumor. Um, and sometimes if it's a really, really big tumor, they might even say that their cheek is swelling or they're having, um, they notice that the roof of their mouth is feeling a little bit funny and it's changed, um, a a little bit. Um, in in general, things you need to keep in mind that it is generally a young male, um, uh, just before puberty or during puberty are the most common times for it to occur. Um, it's really rarely seen in, in older individuals, um, and that and that's kind of the the standard um, HPI that we hear from from a patient with the JNA. Sure. So, Dr. Rowan, are there any risk factors that you're asking about in these patients when you're evaluating them? So the the biggest risk factor is generally just being of the male sex. Um, there's no really predisposing factors that we know of that uh, occur that causes these tumors to arise. Mm-hmm. And. When you're seeing these folks in clinic, uh, physical exam is going to be part of what you do after um, your HPI. And before we get into nasal endoscopy, what are some things you might be looking for apart from nasal endoscopy? So one of the real telltale signs that they have a juvenile nasal angiofibroma is that they have a lot of packing in their nose because they've had a really bad bleed and they'll present to you in kind of dramatic dramatic circumstance. If, however, the, uh, the tumor has been kind of slowly growing over time, um, you might see some drainage um, from the front of their nose, some thick secretions. Um, Again, you want to make sure to look in their mouth and the back of their throat. Um, Every single patient you see, I think it's really important to do a comprehensive ear, nose, and throat exam, especially if you're an otolaryngologist. The burden's on you to do that. So you want to make sure their palate is not effaced or kind of pushed out of the way. Sometimes the tumor will even come into the nasopharynx and down into the oropharynx, and you can see it just with a flashlight going in the front of the nose. You also want to make sure that they, um, uh, and evaluate for proptosis, their eye kind of bulging out a little bit, being a little bit displaced. They may have some facial asymmetry or swelling of that, um, the, the side of their cheek that the lesion is on. Um, and another 
uh, less common finding you might see, but if you have a big obstructing mass of the nasal cavity, they might have some epiphora or drainage from their eye. And moving on to nasal endoscopy, I feel like this is uh, every resident's fear is that you get a mass in the nose and you biopsy it and then it never stops bleeding. So what are you looking for on nasal endoscopy when you evaluate these patients and what tips you off to not biopsy this? So certainly that is a very reasonable uh, fear to have. And I would encourage you uh, as, as a resident yourself, and even if you're an attending, to keep that fear with you um, because... Um, sometimes you should really consider doing um, uh, biopsy in the operating room. And I think this is one of those situations. So if you see a very large tumor that has uh, lots of big blood vessels on it, it's hypervascular in nature, um, or really just kind of looks angry, something that's pulsatile, um, those are all things that I would avoid biopsying in the clinic. Um, juvenile nasal angiofibromas, they do um, have a submucosal extent to them. Um, and so sometimes it, um, it, it's difficult to actually see where the tumor might be. And if you're going to have to go, um, kind of searching for it to really make a tissue diagnosis, whatever the mass is, I'd say in that situation, in my personal practice, I, uh, defer, um, and, and take them to the operating room instead of, uh, doing it in the clinic for the, for the very appropriate concerns that you highlighted. And now that we've talked about kind of your first exam in clinic, I wanted to move on to pathophysiology. What is the etiology? What causes this tumor? So I, I, I think that we, we have an idea what caused this tumor, but we really, there's not a great um, kind of scientific answer to this. So we know that it happens in young males and it happens during puberty. And so um, just kind of based on our, on our gut, we do think that they're is um, some sort of hormonal-related um, reasoning for this tumor to happen. Um, uh, there are some case reports where patients are on hormonal therapy, like testosterone, even after um, having a tumor taken out a long time ago, and they can have regrowth of their, di of their disease. But this is definitely not something that is, that is firm and set in stone. There's a really nice uh, article that came out um, uh, just last month, March of 2020, um, that looked at prostate-specific membrane antigen expression, and they found that it was um, found in 100% of all patients who had a primary JNA. So the suspicion is there that it's it's somehow related to, to testosterone and hormones, but we don't know exactly. Um, there's also another theory that it could be emanating from uh, a non-obliterated first branchial artery, um, but this is kind of theoretical in nature. And uh... What is the classic histopathology of these tumors? So characteristically, the histopathology, um, it's uh, usually, again, pretty classic, as are many things with JNA. So it's a pseudocapsulated lesion um, that has a regular vasculature, and it's just full of blood vessels of different sizes, and it's, a, it's in a thick kind of fibrous stroma. Um, which your pathology report may also notice that there's uh, collagen and fibroblast in it, but a fibrous stroma with lots of large and irregular sized blood vessels is really kind of the key to uh, histopathologic diagnosis. And one of the other things that I've, I've noticed is an important aspect of considering this tumor is its site of origin. Where does this tumor classically present in terms of location and what are the blood vessels feeding it? Yeah, so it, so it is, um, again, there are many things about a JNA that's very classic um, from both the presentations to actually the tumor itself. 
And the most common place that it originates is from this phenylalanine foramen. And so that kind of helps you um, uh, think about kind of where it's going to, where it's going to grow or obstruct. So right next to the sphenopalatine foramen is the, uh, is the nasal cavity and the nasopharynx and the pterygopalatine fossa, which is kind of how it gets its name. Um, and so almost always this, um, this tumor is supplied um, by, uh, by big blood vessels, namely the carotid system. Um, most commonly, almost in 100% of the cases, it comes from the external carotid system. So the terminal branch of the external carotid is internal maxillary artery, which then gives another branch, the sphenopalatine artery. And that's the most common that you'll see um, uh, bleeding, uh, excuse me, that's you'll see blood supply from. But certainly also the pharyngeal and facial vessels, depending how big the size is, um, it's, it's really worth noting and something I'll highlight kind of as a, I anticipate our discussion goes along, that in advanced disease, it's not uncommon for blood supply to be directly from the internal carotid artery. Um, in up to 30% of cases, especially in, um, in uh, really big tumors, they, uh, blood supply can be bilateral in nature, which really highlights something which I, I'm guessing we'll get into in a moment here, but uh, angiography, knowing where the blood supply is from. I think that's really important. So um, re really great question. And another one of the questions that I like to ask is about the natural history of this disease. When you counsel patients on treatment, what do you tell them will happen if they elect to do nothing about this? Yeah, great question. Um, I think a, I think a JNA is um, very similar to other tumors. Uh, unfortunately, um, it will continue to grow um, ha over what period of time. It's really hard for us to stay because it, it because it is a rare pathology. I don't think that we have um, great numbers on that. With some of our cancers, we can say that definitively over a certain period of time, it will grow and invade. Um, certain things. Uh, JNA, at some points, it's faster than others, we, we, we suspect. Um, and I, th I think it's worth talking about the different uh, kind of directions that I was alluding to before, um, wh where it will go, and those are the different things that I counsel my patients on. So um, uh, from the sphenopalatine foramen or the pterygopalatine fossa, um, the most common place for this to go is into the, nas is into the nasal cavity and the nasopharynx, um, eventually crossing over the nasopharynx to the other side, sometimes even pushing the, the nose, uh, excuse me, the nasal septum over to the contralateral side, which will have the patient present with bilateral nasal airway obstruction. And so that's usually at presentation. If a patient decided to wait on this though, or we did nothing, um, which in many cases I would not counsel, the, um, the tumor can extend laterally it can go into the pterygopalatine fossa, out towards the infratemporal fossa, um, and it can cause anterior displacement of the posterior maxillary wall. So the back wall is bulging into the sinus, um, and it can come into the contact with the, the muscles of mastication out laterally in the cheek, and even the soft tissues of the cheek. And so when I was talking about physical examination and presentation, that's why the cheek swelled, because it kind of comes around that, that maxillary sinus towards the front of the face. The tumor can also go posteriorly. And so what's posterior to the uh, pterygopalatine fossa? Well, this is the stuff that you, these are some really kind of critical neurovascular structures, including the internal carotid artery, um, some of the, um, the nerves that come out of the skull base, like cranial nerve number five, it can extend into the, uh, into the cavernous sinus. 
um, and, and really kind of treacherous territory. But it can also go superiorly as well. Remember that your eye is immediately above where, um, where, where the tumor is originating from. So in through the inferior orbital fissure, um, which can displace the eye either laterally or um, anteriorly resulting in proptosis. Remember that these, um, that these tumors, they kind of, much like other pathologies in the sinonasal cavity, they can kind of push on bone and cause that bone to, uh, bone to resorb. And doesn't necessarily eat through bone necessarily, but a lot of times it's by direct pressure. Um, but certainly the cancellous root of the pterygoid process or the, um, the pterygoid wedge, as I refer to it, um, may be part of the site of origination or even the site of uh, recurrence of, of, of disease. And before we get into workup, uh, you say that this is a pretty classic presentation and tumor, but what else do you keep on your differential diagnosis? Yeah. So um, again, probably the first, the first five things I think about when I have a young, uh, a young man who kind of fits all the criteria with nasal blockage, uh, uh, a tumor in his nose and some bleeding, JNA, JNA, JNA. Those are the things that I worry about. Um, I would also uh, submit to you that um, patients can present with antrochoidal polyps, common things being common. Um, that may be one, uh, something on the differential diagnosis. Certainly, it's a much less benign pathology than is a JNA. Um, but it, radiographically, it may also present with a, uh, a unilateral lesion that's filling up the maxillary sinus and effacing the wall coming into the nasal cavity and nasopharynx, especially in the right demographic. Other differential diagnoses you might want to think about. So other things that bleed, pyogenic granulomas and hemangioparasitomas are also, uh, they may also present as tumors in the nose that bleed. Certainly paragangliomas, um, more common things being common, they could have really bad uh, chronic rhinosinusitis with uh, massive nasal polyposis or allergic fungal rhinosinusitis, which both kind of present with very large uh, polyps. Even further uh, down in the differential um, uh, are uh, just run-of-the-mill kind of uh, nosebleeds or epistaxis. Certainly posterior in nature would be more common because these, again, are kind of dramatic. Um, they may also... Um, have uh, just kind of run-of-the-mill rhinitis or runny nose um, or allergic rhinitis. Again, this would be less likely. And really, the list goes on and on with diminishing returns of any kind of tumor that might happen in the in, in the nose. But I think those are kind of the big ones. So moving on to workup, you have a patient who you highly suspect has uh, JNA. What is your uh, first step in workup? So um, imaging is certainly the, the next step. Um, Number one, again, if it's a dramatic presentation and they're and they're bleeding, always the first the first response is make sure that the patient is okay and that they're stable. They're not bleeding, not having any issues with that. Once that once you are assured that there's no uh, impending doom or any potential problems to the patient, imaging is the next way to go. So um, in this situation, I would pursue both a uh, CT scan as uh, as as well as an MRI. I would prefer to get both. With, uh, with, with contrast, um, because again, a highlight um, of this tumor is the vascular nature. And so I want to know where the blood supply is coming from. And if we are thinking about maybe taking this out down the road, um, how are we going to do that? And where are we going to run into potential risk spots? So uh, the CT scan, as all CT scans are, they're really great at identifying bony landmarks. Um, and it'll kind of tell you where it is. 
there's a uh, super classic sign called the Holman Miller sign. Again, I was talking about the, the posterior wall of the maxillary sinus being pushed out by a tumor growing in that sphenopalatine foramen. That's um, one of the best things to look for. It's uh, pretty easy to see on an axial cut CT scan. Um, and, and so the CT is, where, is what I would probably look at first. And then I'd look at an MRI. I'd look at in all three different cuts, coronal, sagittal, and axial cuts to really kind of get a good extent of where the tumor is. I'd look at the the, the T1, the T2, and the T1 post-con, um, which is probably the most helpful. The T1 is going to give you kind of an intermediate signal, not necessarily give you a ton of information um, other than what a standard um, T1 uh, sequence might show you. The T2 is going to show you a bit more. Um, it's going to start to show you the uh, heterogeneous signal. There are significant flow voids in it because of the prominent vasculature of the tumor. Um, but the T1 post-con um, with uh, contrast, rather, with gadolinium really will show prominent enhancement of the tumor and um, kind of show you exactly where it's at to really give you a great idea where that soft tissue is. And what about angiography? What's the role for pre-op angiography and how you use it in, in planning? Yeah, so I, I think that angiography is uh, no short of critical. Um, and I would suggest that um, in the current era that we're in where technology and um, kind of complete uh, and thorough medical care is, is, is available, I would argue that, um, like some authors do, that this is a, an essential part of workup um, and comprehensive management. Um, and, and it's generally my practice to do so. I guess there are certain situations where if the tumor was very small, if the pathology was unknown, then, um, then it, you, you could get by without doing an angiography. However, given the, uh, again, the classic appearance of these tumors, I think it's, it's something that comes, you kind of confirm with your CT and your MRI. Once you know that you're kind of dealing with it with a JNA, you want to make sure that you know where the blood supply is from. Sure thing. And, um, this might kind of be a, an odd question, but how do you make the official diagnosis of this? Is there a way to know before you obtain a pathologic specimen uh, that this is JNA? Yeah, so it, all, it goes back to the history and presentation is, is key for this. And you've all but made the diagnosis. Um, you know, tissue diagnosis is really the, is, is really the gold standard. And so um, that's how you do it. Um, typically, what I'll do in my practice, and it, and it varies from time to time, We'll, uh, and, and from practice to practice, but we'll have a pretty darn good idea that's what we're dealing with. And so um, because it is a classic pathology, we can do a, uh, a, a biopsy with a frozen section in the operating room to confirm that we do have a, that we do have a diagnosis. Um, again, kind of for your concerns you brought up before, the potential bleeding for, um, in, in the office, it's my preference not to do these in, in the clinic. Um, because they, they do bleed. Uh, it's also my preference not to put young males to sleep over and over again if I can avoid it. And so I try to save uh, an anesthetic and put them to sleep once, and hopefully we can, do, we can get an official diagnosis while preparing for complete excision at the same, at the same point. And as I've been uh, kind of reading about this pathology, I've noticed that there are a lot of classification systems. I'm curious to know what classification system you use when approaching uh, these tumors and how you uh, use the classification system in preoperative considerations. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that this is this is a really um, important question, and and I would argue that you know as you're kind of implying, I'll just go out and say it. It's overwhelming. There are over there, there's something on the order of like twelve major staging systems, that, meaning that um, really kind of well-respected authors, really well-done articles, and uh, leaders in our field. But there's a lot of there's a lot of noise out there when we talk about staging systems. I think it's worth putting out and saying that a, a universal staging system is something that's needed. So we're all kind of speaking the same language. Um, I think the universal staging system should really help with planning as you're as you're mentioning. So if I'm gonna as a surgeon gonna be taking out one of these tumors, I want to know kind of what I'm getting myself into ahead of time. Um, I also similarly want to be able to tell patients about some of the uh, the associated risks the anticipated outcomes and what I think their prognosis is um, overall. And I think that uh, finally a universal staging system, um, you know, allows us to develop um, better standards of care by being able to discuss our, uh, our outcomes. I think it's really important for JNAs. Again, we keep on hitting this on this over and over again, but they're bloody tumors. And so you want to know in advance if there's any way to figure out how much blood you're going to lose and potentially the need for a transfusion, which is not a benign intervention at all. Um, you want to know how to plan your operation is in how much you're going to need to stage, whether or not you need to stage the operation, um, the likelihood of having leftover disease, or the need to go back to the operating room at some point in time. Um, and uh, the, the staging system in my practice that, um, that uh, most closely reflects all these goals is the uh, the University of Pittsburgh uh, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center staging system by uh, Carl Snyderman and colleagues that was originally published back in 2010. It's really unique in that it accounts for the vascularity of the tumor by incorporating some of those finer details from the preoperative angiography and subsequent um, um, uh, <clears throat> embolization, presumed embolization. Unfortunately, while the uh, podcast mechanism is really um, it, it is really great, it does have some shortcomings that I can't physically show you right now. But the way that I think about the UPMC staging system is I think about it as a traffic light, basically. So there there's five different there's um, five different rating systems. Uh, excuse me, stages one, two, three, four, and five. Five is broken down into medial and lateral, or M and L, kind of talking about where the carotid artery goes. Um, but stages one, two, and three, they're kind of the green light area. They are isolated just to the nose for stage one, the nose and the associated sinuses for stage two. For stage three, they start to get into kind of some of the danger areas and they start to erode the skull base, the orbit, but they don't have any additional blood supply um, to them after, after embolization. Um, and so once you have embolization, the surgery becomes a whole heck of a lot easier. Um, stage four, that's kind of your amber light that says, uh, I better pump the brakes a little bit, or I sh maybe I should stop and make sure that I'm number one, surgically, uh, trained and skilled enough to do this. Number two, that I have the right kind of tools that I need in place. Um, because stage four has residual vascularity. So leftover blood supply. So even if you had the, a great embolization preoperatively, you're still going to have a some associated bleeding stage five is your red light. You should really stop and kind of think and make sure that um, you are being thoughtful about your operation. You should um, uh, consider staging the procedure um, because there's a residual blood supply from the uh, internal carotid system generally. And uh, there is intracranial extension of the disease as well. 
um, making it for a much riskier surgery um, when there is a higher probability and chance of untoward outcomes. Um, and so I don't think the UPMC staging system is, um, you know, it is necessarily perfect, but I think it is a really great common language for us all to talk um, about because it does incorporate, um, you know, a lot of these really important, important facets to it. So anatomy, where the tumor is, um, the likelihood of your outcomes, and uh, it does kind of help in your surgical planning as well, which I think is is really, really important. And moving on to treatment, um, surgical excision uh, is going to be the mainstay of treatment, but there is uh, maybe some roles for medical therapy and radiation therapy. Before we jump into surgery, can you speak to those? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would argue that it depends who you talk to um, a bit about medical uh, about medical and radiation therapy. So going back to the uh, the hormonal kind of stuff that we were talking about before, the the theor- the thought that this is hormone related, there is some evidence that um, testosterone receptor blockers like flutamide um, do do work. They're used rarely. I suspect that with more papers like that I referred to before about the prostate specific antigen. We will see kind of more uh, testosterone-related therapy um, as, as a potential additional modality. But again, medical therapy is not commonly used. Radiation therapy is typically reserved for, um, for uh, uh, an adjuvant therapy. So when and if surgery doesn't work or there's disease that is not accessible surgically, um, in some centers, they use this as an option. However, some authors are concerned about this, um, given the unknown kind of long-term consequences of stereotactic radiotherapy, especially in, uh, in, in young children. So moving on to surgical excision, uh, can you tell us about uh, your preoperative approach and then how you choose uh, your surgical modality? Yes, absolutely. So um, we, we've kind of, we've, we've talked about how I would approach it preoperatively, um, and that is with uh, comprehensive imaging, so which includes a CT, an MRI, and an angio. The timing of the angiography is really important to me, though. I got a lot of the information, especially from, that, from the MRI, but um, I plan to uh, uh, embolize them after their, after their angiography, and that's best done um, really within uh, 24 to, uh, to 48 hours, and I've, I've asked many of my Uh, endovascular colleagues about the most appropriate timing for this. And I'll I'll tell you that I don't think anybody has a really great answer for me. Um, However, the most important point here is that preoperative embolization is, uh, it's really important to minimize the associated risks of bleeding. It can uh, significantly decrease actually the size of the tumor. Um, but, but again, you really want to, uh, do your best to knock out the robust blood supply from an external carotid system that's feeding these tumors. And so you, you asked about surgical modality. So, um, I, I think as we progress with our advances in endoscopic skull-based surgery, and we have lots of rhinologists who are comfortable and, and neurosurgeons as well. And I, I will talk about that as well. This is not just an otolaryngology topic. Um, but as neurosurgeons and otolaryngologists both become increasingly familiar and comfortable with endoscopic approaches, the endoscopic approach is really kind of their preferred treatment option of choice. There's a really nice meta-analysis that came out by um, some authors from, uh, from Georgia, from Augusta and Emory, that showed that um, the outcomes are generally improved with the, uh, the endoscopic approach. Uh, there's lower risk of residual disease 
And uh, for those authors, they actually go as far to say that the endoscopic approach should be considered the standard of care. Um, and so while there is certainly, and traditionally there always was a role for open, um, open resections of these, uh, of these tumors doing, uh, wide openings of the face and or doing craniotomies in order to extract this. Um, I think that's becoming less and less common and really should only be considered, um, uh, in kind of rare, rare, rare cases, or, um, if really critical structures are involved. Um, such as the orbit or the, uh, the, the carotid is encased or something else that really is an extraordinary kind of presentation. And how do you approach the control of bleeding during these cases? How do you anticipate bleeding and how do you counsel folks before surgery on their risk of, uh, of a need of transfusion? That, I mean, that's as a surgeon, that is, um, that is my probably biggest concern preoperatively. And so number one, I make sure that I have the tools available that, that I'll need to, to take this tumor out. And so the coblator is something I really like to use um, to kind of get around the tumor. I feel that it, it does a really good job at, of, of controlling bleeding, but bipolar cautery as well, I think is important. Having an extra set of hands is really, really important. I'm alluding to it stronger and stronger here, but I think that doing this team-based surgery especially for the large, uh, the large surgeries is, is really important to make sure that you can have somebody to suction some bleeding away. If you're working in a really small hole and there's, uh, there, there's bleeding, then, uh, you know, it makes it that much more difficult. I do, uh, you know, I stage all of these ahead of time. So if you read through any of my notes, um, you would, uh, see that I'd, I'd say this is a whatever, uh, 16 year old boy with a uh, UPMC stage, uh, blah, blah, blah. And that will help me in both my thought process about the surgery, but also prepare the patients and their family. Um, again, you're talking to mom and dad a lot often in these situations, as it is a young child. And so um, I don't have a particular number that I say that I'm going to stop at, but the increasing the, num- the stage of disease, the more likely I am to halt the surgery and to stage it. And, you know, one other thing that would, that's really important to say is that, you know, I, I work, I get access first, just like any other surgery, just because I'm operating in the nose, I still maintain all the basic surgical principles that we all learn in managing head and neck tumors. And that's getting access and kind of seeing the tumor before tackling it. So the first move is not about just taking the tumor out. It's making sure that I have appropriate access to it. And then after I have access, really kind of isolating the blood supply. So I want to do my best to cut off that, any residual blood supply um, as, as soon as I can. And that's kind of how, that's my thought process for these anyways. And you talked about endoscopic approaches being the mainstay of treatment, but how do you know if and when you need to have a more extensive approach like a craniotomy? So uh, again, I think those are, those are really rare situations. Uh, I will, you know, another valuable point that I didn't mention was that, you know, we discuss these as a team. I generally do these with the neurosurgeon. And so um, we, we do talk about it as, as a team beforehand. And sometimes it is a, it is a game time decision to a, to, a, to a certain degree to say stop. And it's, it's to use, your, it's to use your, your better judgment. But again, the things that really make me think about doing some sort of open approach, number one, uh, it needs to be said that these are combined approaches, not just straight open approaches. Usually we're using endoscope to really get the excellent visualization that we're afforded by that. But number two, if there's a ton of intracranial disease that's really hard to get to, and I'm worried about control of critical neurovascular structures, 
um, we may consider doing an open craniotomy for some of the intracranial spread. And if the internal carotid artery is encased, um, that's also something that we kind of, we, we think about and worry about. Um, but in that case, you know, it may very well be a, something that I, we take out the majority of the disease and then we will stage potentially even re-image down the road to do a kind of further, more extensive surgery. Does that help? Yeah. And understanding that this is a spectrum of tumor, there are different stages that can uh, portend different outcomes. How do you typically counsel patients on the outcomes and expectations and risk of recurrence? Yeah. So I, uh, you know, again, keeping in mind that the staging, I think it's, I think it's really important. So stages, stages one through three should generally be pretty gettable. And so hopefully the recurrence rates are pretty low in, in those situations, but things like UPMC stage four and stage five. So tumors that have leftover blood supply from the carotid system and are certainly going intracranially. Um, you, you do worry that there is, uh, number one, residual disease. And number two, if there is residual disease, that this becomes uh, essentially recurrent or starts growing back. Some of the rates are as high as 15 to 20%, depending upon, like you said, kind of it's a, it's a spectrum of disease. Um, and, uh, you, know, you know, some of the more advanced tumors, they're more likely to, to recur. The recurrence, it's, it's notable to talk about where it happens. And so if you left tumor on the internal carotid artery purposefully, again, keeping in mind that this is a benign diagnosis. This is not, this is not a cancer. This is something that we'll talk about what happens with them over time. Um, but it, it, it's, it's not, um, something that's going to change their, their life tomorrow necessarily. And so if you need to leave a little bit behind on a critical neurovascular structure, like the internal carotid, we, we do. And so if you leave it on the internal carotid artery, that's most likely where it is to recur if you're going to have regrowth of disease. Um, but also certainly the recurrence often occurs at the base of the sphenoid, um, really at the interface of the sphenoid and, and, the, and the pterygoid plate or the pterygoid wedge, um, as, as I call it. And so um, classically, some surgeons describe drilling down that bone to make sure that you don't have any residual disease. Um, but, um, you know, again, the risk factors for recurrence or regrowth, again, we will really residual disease. And so I think a better term is probably regrowth of tumor are, uh, patients who are young cause they've got a, a higher probability of having hormones, um, and going through puberty and causing regrowth of the disease. If there is in fact a hormonal component to it, big tumors, um, that are in bad places. So in the, in the brain, excuse me, into the intracranial space or against the carotid artery or in the orbit. And, and post-surgically, how do you follow up with these? Great question that I would argue, um, we don't know the answer to necessarily for me, for many of us, post-operative MRIs, uh, are really important in conjunction with nasal endoscopy. My preference in, in many skull-based tumors is to get an immediate kind of post-operative MRI to really figure out what's going on and evaluate the amount of residual disease in order to make sure that in the future, I'm not getting confused about what's scar, what's inflammation, what's something that's alternate anatomy for something that I changed um, by manipulating the anatomy inside their nose. And so um, uh, looking in their nose with a nasal endoscope and an MRI on the order of about every six months or so over the first two to three years is, um, is, is important for me. That's a little bit nuanced depending on how old the patient is. Again, these patients, they're, they're not likely to have regrowth of their disease if they shortly thereafter become kind of a full-fledged adult and they're not going through 
um, puberty or don't have kind of some of the risk factors. They kind of get out of the, uh, the characteristic age range. Again, I mentioned this was, this was a topic of debate. And actually, when I was in your shoes um, as a resident, we asked this exact question. And we said, so if you leave tumor behind, if you have residual disease, number one, what does that patient kind of generally look like? And number two, when does a tumor regrow and how long should you surveil them for? I think this has really, really strong and important clinical considerations. And what we found were that patients who had advanced disease, as we mentioned, stage four and stage five, those are the patients who had residual disease. Um, in the small series we did, where there were uh, a small number of only 12 patients with residual disease, only a third of them had regrowth and uh, required additional surgery. Um, typically, within the first year, you knew that they were having recurrence of their disease. And it's really, I know it's hard to have kind of meaningful statistics based on this small end that I'm describing, but with a rare tumor that is 0.5% uh, of all head and neck cancers, it's uh, notable um, to, or, or important to note some of the trends, even when it's a small, small amount of data. Well, Dr. Rowan, this has been a really comprehensive discussion. I appreciate your time. Before I move on to summarizing what we talked about, is there anything you'd like to add? Not, not so much. I think we hit on a lot of the key points. Again, I, I hinted at it kind of throughout. I think it's really important to work in a multidisciplinary team for this. Um, JNAs are tumors that um, uh, despite them being classic and despite having known about them for a really long period of time, they can be humbling and they can unfortunately carry a significant amount of risk. I, I just wanted to come out right and say, and so for those reasons, I think it's important to work with a multidisciplinary team. I personally do all of these tumors with my neurosurgeon to make sure that number one, we're always practicing. We're always working together. We're working as a team and we have that extra set of hands in there. God forbid there was some bleeding or some difficulty with the surgery. I, I think it, that's really important to have to work as a team, especially for a, a, a large tumor with a significant amount of risk like, like this. Sure. Well, thanks so much for your time. I'll move on to our summary now. Uh, JNA is a benign, highly vascular tumor that presents in adolescent males, most commonly with nasal obstruction and recurrent epistaxis. The etiology isn't entirely understood, but could include a hormonal component, especially given the male predominance and more recent studies. Workup includes nasal endoscopy without biopsy in clinic uh, and a CT and MRI to understand the full extent of the tumor. Also preoperatively, you should obtain an angiography, which will provide information about the blood supply to the tumor and also um, provide a way to perform embolization prior to surgical resection. Increasingly, surgical resection is most commonly performed endoscopically. Uh, there is still some role uh, for a combined approach uh, for more extensive tumors, uh, especially if they are involving the internal carotid artery. Um, outcomes, as we talked about, are generally very good for lower stage tumors, but with uh, the higher stage tumors, there can be uh, an increased regrowth rate, which is why these uh, patients need to be followed up routinely with imaging. Dr. Rowan, anything else you'd like to add? No, sir. That is, uh, that sounds absolutely perfect. Great summary. And I'd, I'd go as far to say that is all in a nutshell. <laughs> well, thanks so much. Uh, I'll now move on to the question asking portion of our episode. As a reminder, I'll ask a question, wait a few seconds, and then give the answer. So the first question is, what are the common presenting symptoms of JNA? 
The two most common presenting symptoms of JNA are nasal obstruction and epistaxis. Of course, this epistaxis can be recurrent and is almost always unilateral. There are also other symptoms that can include headache, rhinorrhea, purulent drainage, facial pressure, and cheek swelling. For our next question, what is the most common location and blood supply of JNA? So JNA most commonly occurs at the sphenopalatine foramen and can therefore involve the nasal cavity and the PPF. In terms of blood supply, this most commonly comes from the internal maxillary artery, but can also include the internal carotid artery and contralateral blood supply. Next question, what are preoperative considerations in this patient subset? As we alluded to several times through this uh, episode, embolization can be very helpful here and can aid in surgical resection. Additionally, you should have a conversation with the patient about the risk of significant blood loss and the possible need for transfusion, and also the possibility of uh, neurological deficits and most commonly numbness. And for our final question, what is the risk of recurrence in these patients? Again, as we discussed, uh, earlier stage tumors such as UPMC stage one through three have a pretty low risk of recurrence, uh, and it's the higher stage ones that are at a higher risk. Uh, and this can be up to 20% uh, depending on the extent of tumor. And the, they should therefore be followed with serial imaging and six month intervals are probably appropriate. Um, but uh, as Dr. Rowan said, the data around this is not so solid. These are strict rules. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.